Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Baird. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? I'm doing great. I'm doing really good here. Now, John, I want to talk about something and I don't want it to seem like a shameless plug, but it's going to come off that way, I'm sure. But but the topic (laughs) is, and this is really important, you know, this isn't, we're not just going to talk about this because it's what we do, but you know, one of the questions that I'm answering on a practically a daily basis is, you know, what makes a good defense lawyer? And, you know, I thought, let's talk about that. That's a very uh, interesting topic and something that I think people tend to want to know. Um, well, I you couldn't even stop me from talking about it. <laughs> but, but you've been a lawyer for how long now? 31 years. 31 years. Oh, my goodness. You sound ancient. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, Let me tell you, i never forget the first time I realized how long I've been practicing was when I was representing somebody who was like 22. And I realized <clears throat> at that point that I was, and this was years ago, I had been out like 24 years and I realized to myself, oh, my God, I've been practicing longer than this kid's been alive. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I get that sense every once in a while too. Yeah, where, you know, you un- <laughs> the person you're appearing, it's usually someone from the prosecutor's office that's in that age range, you know. But um yeah, it's I, I you know the story as to how I became a defense lawyer and I, and I know your story and and I, I think it's you have a very fascinating um background because back way before I knew you People would be surprised to hear you were actually a kind of a Republican-minded kind of person. I, I was more than Republican-minded. I was um, card-carrying. Uh, <laughs> a card-carrying. I worked for um, the Reagan campaign. I worked for a Republican congressman on Capitol Hill. I worked for the the Republican Party of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All in the eighties, while I was in college, and I was going to school in Madison which is not exactly a Republican bastion. No, not at all. No, I mean, uh, not even back then. Well, probably more so back then it wasn't. Um, but what, what gave you the, the initial idea to become a defense lawyer? <clears throat> That's a really interesting road. Um, well, uh, after I graduated from law school, for, for folks that haven't gone to law school, it's, it's, it's a horrible experience. And um, it's fascinating like the law is fascinating on many, many levels, but law school is filled with these type A overachievers who um, are like ruthlessly competitive. And um, <clears throat> I remember so, those guys were the ones that wore suspenders to, to class. <laughs> Bow ties, yeah. So, um, and so in that culture, the, uh, the overriding objective seems to be to get the the highest paying job at the biggest firm and, um, you know, not of course realizing that you're going to work, you know, 80 hours a week and not have a life. But, um, and, and that's what I did. And I got to work at this, um, insurance defense firm, which was a fine firm. There was nice people and everything, but the work was like soul crushing. It was just, Mm. it was just horrid. And, um, I, I was really like, I'm not doing this for the next 40 years of my life. So I almost joined the FBI and then, um, I decided to go the academic route and I was going to get a PhD in history and become a professor. 
uh, because I thought there was going to be a lot of jobs, a lot of baby boomers retiring, and it's what I really was fascinated to be to, to do that. Well, on the road there, I moved to California, and I was working f- uh, while I was getting residency. I was working for um, uh, an attorney, and down the hall was this guy who was a cheesehead, and he he was a private investigator, and I did a bunch of work for him on the side. Um, he was a private investigator for criminal cases, like large-scale Southern California criminal cases. And so he would, you know, just contract with me to write pre-sentence reports and to interview witnesses after trials and blah, 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 blah. So I was bombing all over the place doing this, and I completely caught the bug about criminal work, about using my law degree to, to do something interesting and, and, and important. And, um, and the more I got into it, the more I saw, this was at the beginning, it's the early 90s, this is like, so like the height, the, the war on drugs was ramped up, but it was ramping up even more exponentially at that point. And, and um, I saw the unbelievable inequities and the power differentials um, between uh, the prosecution and the defense growing, 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 growing with this war on drugs. And um, it was like, um, people need to fight against this. And, and, and that's when I just made a fundamental decision. I was like, all right, well, I've, came, I've come this far getting a law degree, and now I finally found something that I can use it for that's actually substantial and good, and um, and along the way, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah on, in a similar vein, I didn't have any idea uh, what I was going to do with my law degree. I really, I was in the Air Force at the time, and I just, uh, I really enjoyed going to college so much that I wanted to continue my education. It's really all I was interested in, and hadn't thought far enough ahead to think, well, you know, what am I going to do with this law degree? I probably had every intention of staying in the Air Force. I just didn't know it at the time. So, <clears throat> similar experience. I, you know, my colleagues in law school were a lot of those, uh, you know, aspiring to be corporate types or in those seven hundred lawyer law firms, you know, coast to coast, right. big gigantic firms. And I knew that wasn't my bag. I, I was not at all interested in that. I I briefly entertained the idea of working in like a regular law firm and. That, that turned me off pretty quickly just because, well, uh, it was a personality clash more than anything. So it looked like my best bet was to stay in the Air Force, and I had gone into the reserves while I was in law school, and then um, I, I did have to apply to get back in. It wasn't an automatic thing by any means. It was a competitive process to get back in. But I did that, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, I'll be a lawyer, I'll be a JAG, I'll do whatever the Air Force tells me, and I'll be happy, right? Um and I, I was fortunate because I had an opportunity to, uh, very early on in that process, to start practicing in the criminal law area as a prosecutor. And, you know, I, again, I, I really had no preference for one area of the law versus another. Um, but I found that I had this affinity for the fact patterns, the, the uh, just a fascination with the way that the law interacts with life, you know, and um, just just applying it in such a way where you could, you, you get these uh, almost like temporal results. I mean, it's something that you see immediately. And there's so much in the law where there's none of that, you know, like contract law or 
you know, copyright litigation. It's, it's all sort of stuff that's out there, and you have a client, and you do the work, and they pay you. Or, but at least within the military, there's a lot of um, you know, you don't get paid anymore based on what you do. But it's all this sort of theoretical stuff, like oh, let's build this policy and make sure that it's legal and blah blah blah. It's a bunch of words right, and right. a bunch of books and a bunch of that. You know, well, this. this Go ahead. This is probably this. It's probably the same as is in the the military. But I look at it as getting up every day, and on two levels, I get to exist in this fascinating world of defending the Constitution. So it's an intellectual um, endeavor, and then I represent real human beings who have real lives, who have been affected by you know this overcriminalization and um, uh, over-policing and um, over-prosecuting. Uh, and, and when you can help them and maybe even change the law, like win an appeal or win a great suppression motion or something like that, you know, you're, you're existing on these two planes, and it's, that's, that's really satisfying. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I figured out is that, and again, but first as a prosecutor, well, it, I got to the point where, I, you know, I became pretty good at that, and then I was given another great opportunity, which was to try defense work. And that's when I, I left my initial base that I had been assigned at as an officer, moved to Colorado, and lived there for two and a half years defending people. And I knew from the second that I started that that was my thing. I, I just knew it. it. It felt so much more significant. I mean... First of all, to be in the criminal law arena had that first kick of adrenaline in me. But then to realize that uh, there's no other way that you can directly impact a person's life, hopefully in a positive way, than by right. defending them, you know. Um, and that's <laughs> – you get a little taste of it and it's like, oh, my gosh, what have I been doing uh, aside from this for my whole life? Right. And, and thank God I've got it now. Um well, that that's just I just kind of wanted people to know a little bit about our backgrounds because people probably don't know that we have, um, you know, those things in common, as well as the fact that I was in California when you were in California. Uh, I'm actually oh, from, I'm from there, but I used to go back and visit all the time when I was a kid, you know, and you're yeah, just, I always wanted to go surfing with you. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe someday. Who knows? All right, we got to take a break, John. So we'll be right back All after right. these messages. We are back. Oh, we're back. Yes, we're it's back. More. Yeah. Legal defense. More of with that. Kirk and John. <laughs> All right. What should uh, it be? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was thinking. Um, one of the things that, in addition to this being a, a fascinating job, one that. Um, I, you know, you and I both say we could probably just keep doing this forever. Um, and I, I, I think you feel that way a little bit more than I do in the sense that I, I do get tired. You know, I've been doing this nonstop for 27 years almost. And there are times when I think how much it's like running a marathon. But then stuff happens and and what the thing that always gets me right back in the saddle is when i witness injustice uh, personally you know Absolutely. As, as things are happening and I, then i feel this desperate need to correct it and i feel like if i if i just sat back and let life happen then it would drive me crazy and i don't know how that's going to work if i ever do retire and i 
you know, I'll be <laughs> watching the news or something and I'll I'll jump out of my <laughs> chair at the old folks home and get, you know, use my walker and go right down yeah. to the courthouse and start yelling at people. I know I can just see that and happening. Then, so. And then the news will show up with they'll be like crazy old man at courthouse. Cameras <laughs> <laughs> out there. So, um, but you know, uh, you're right. You know, any any profession really, you're going to have the risk of burnout and um uh, and that's natural, you know, I mean, and I think the way that, that I've dealt with it, um, and I, I've certainly had those low ebbs, but, um, the way I've dealt with it is doing extra projects, uh, for free, um, things like, uh, the, uh, decade long fight to get the public defender rate, raised in Wisconsin, which was uh, frankly an embarrassment around the country. We were the lowest in the country and, um, and that fight still goes on. And so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying this, this sort of lights my fire. Um, even though it was a lonely and, um, and seemingly impossible fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody, nobody thought nobody could get it done and yet it got done. And yet, um, uh, it got done to be raised, but it wasn't enough. Right. And so I know the, that sounds like struggle sounds continues. Like, the struggle continues, right? It does. It does. And um, and and you know, and for example, I will be on the um, the NOCTL board next year, which uh, NOCTL stands for the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And Kirk and I are both um, pro, uh, former presidents of the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. So. You were a former NOCTL board member. Yes. And um, uh, I felt like, you know, hey, that's something I haven't done yet. And that's and I want to have an effect, even if it's just in my own small way, on policy. And whether it's at the state or national level, I, you know, I, I, I feel like um, that gives me a lot of fuel uh, to keep going. And... Uh, um, uh, you know, and and you can't be afraid of getting your teeth kicked in, which right. we defense lawyers do all the time. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we actually if we actually lost teeth when our teeth got get kicked in, then we neither yes. you or I would have any teeth it's left. More, it's more of a car, it's more of a cartoon thing, like the right. anvil dropping on your head. But <laughs> and then the, the physicality of the whole thing—it's what it feels like. It really does. Yes. But, uh, but or banging your head against the wall—that's it. Literally feels like right. that sometimes, but. Yeah, I'm I'm excited that you're on the board because my years on the board were very um, challenging, but also exceptionally rewarding. To be involved in uh, policy matters on a national level is really something that um, I find engaging, but also you, you get exposed to the best of the best lawyers. And I've well, for- I forged some friendships that continue to this day. Um, yeah, that's that's exactly what um, inspires me about it. Is um, and that and that actually brings up a, 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 an ancillary point, which is um, the pursuit of excellence in your craft, whatever your craft is. You know, and and I've always held a very high standard for myself, and I know you have too, which is why we get along so well. But um, uh, and and I and I like to raise the bar for other defense lawyers, right? Uh, <clears throat> because I feel we have such an important job, such a critical role in the system, and uh, and there's it seems like there's not enough uh, folks that are 
engaged in this segment of the profession that are really striving to um, to be at the top of their game. And I think, and I don't mean that as a as a as a harsh criticism, because I think some of them are laboring under. Um, impossible circumstances, like in the public defender's office, for example, where they have caseload requirements that make it impossible to do what you and I do a lot of the times, which is to really work cases up. They can't do that because they're crushed with um, uh, uh, they're crushed with uh, just like this overwhelming amount of work, and uh, it's because of, it's because of underfunding, which is. That, that loops right back to working things like you know raising the rate right, or right. working things through with NACTO or yeah. whatever. So another another big project I've been involved with for almost my whole career, but uh, much more so obviously when I became a civilian is when I uh, I joined the the NACTO, I mean the uh, normal normal um, uh, legal board. Uh, board of the board of lawyers that uh, advise the organization on policy matters, cons- primarily constitutional law, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, uh, the legal legal board, advising uh, for like I said, policy matters and primarily constitutional law issues that come up. Um, I had no idea when I started that endeavor right around 1999 um, that. There would be any success whatsoever uh, in the uh, on the path towards uh, deregulating. Yeah, talk about tilting. Yeah, I know yeah, <laughs> tilting at windmills. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I mean, that was more like a pipe dream than <clears throat> no pun intended. <laughs> uh, <coughs> actually, pun intended. Let me just say <clears throat> to you know not not only to reform the justice system, which which is what we really are paying attention to right now. But other things that we've seen successful in other states that along the lines of uh, medical marijuana, um, production of hemp, and recreational marijuana, no, none of which were even in the infant stages of being reality back then. So to be part of that organization and see the types of things that have happened and the benefits that have befallen states that that uh, have the courage to uh, and get you know make some serious uh, changes in the way that their justice system operates i mean so do you feel do you feel as though normal was um kind of the driving force between a lot of the uh campaigns um around the country do you think that normal was sort of the driving force behind uh behind a lot of the campaigns around the country where a lot of um yeah, we got thirty-four states now. Yeah, that are recreational or right, or, or some, and, form, um, some form of legal legalization. <clears throat> yes, I mean whether okay. it falls uh, under decriminalization, full legalization, legalization for some purposes versus others. But the yes, um, normal has a lot to do with that because what normal has become is kind of a clearinghouse for data studies um, and a connection source for people that have had success. In lobbying, in particular, and that's where the rubber really meets the road. When you can get um, legislators to understand, to take you seriously. Uh, but another thing that Normal has done that I think is just hard to um, overestimate the importance of this is tackling the cultural issues that have that were created and promoted throughout 
the 70s and 80s and into the 90s um, about the vilification of marijuana as compared with other types of drugs. Now, I say this after Oregon has actually legalized all drugs. That's where I was going next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, but, but, and Normal's never taken that position that all drugs are good. You know, and actually Normal's never taken the position that, that marijuana is like a cure-all or the, the answer to all of our prayers. They've just advocated for responsible adult use that, you know, and to have it regulated by law in the correct way instead of made illegal. And the thing that really helps, that helped a lot, was the general exposure level to this issue over the years and building momentum and getting people to be willing to talk about it. And there was a survey, I mean, a, a, I don't know how biased it was or unbiased it was. They tried to, paid a lot of money, I know, to, to take the survey, but a nationwide survey on people that um, either use marijuana on a regular basis or have within the past, you know, five years or something like that. And it was like, you know, 48% of Americans or something like that. You know, it was a, a surprising number if you're uh, making the point of this is, a, this is a normal thing that people do. Hey, we've hit that point where we got to take a break, but we'll be right back after these messages. Okay. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed those commercials. I did. I really did. I did. I bought everything. Yeah, I was like writing things down. You know, I, once again, you know, if you have, if you don't listen to our show very often, you might not know that that's like a joke between us because we don't even know what the commercials are. They don't even tell us. You know, it could be a public service announcement about erectile dysfunction. Yeah. I don't know. And then yeah. here we are, like, I bought all that stuff. <laughs> we're, we're just, we're just so, silly. We're just silly. Um, uh, yeah. Well, you got to have some fun. I was finishing up my comments about how normal influenced me and. And how a good example of how you make these little investments in time, spread it out over a long period of time, and you can, you can make a difference. You really can. And I will tell you, John, you, I'm telling you something you already know, but I want to say it out loud. It, it takes a special kind of person to, to be able to effectively and, and more than effectively to be a good defense lawyer. But on top of that, to be able to devote your your other time, your time that you're not compensated for, that your free time to these bigger issues is something that so few people, um, I don't know, have the willingness to do. There are literally a handful of people in our state that are on that level. And then there's a big, big, you know, swamp of other people that are, you know, they're just kind of trying to make ends meet. This is something that they fell into by accident or it's not the job they really want, but, you know. And then, then you've got this other category of people that somehow, somewhere, got the bright idea that this was the ticket to making a ton of money. Um, <laughs> you know, we charge yeah. we charge yeah. fees that are reasonable, and we, we earn every penny of them. But, you know, if you really want to make a ton of money as a lawyer, then you don't do this. You, you do something that is, you know, in the financial world, or you, you have a big, big client like Disney or something like that. Um, Doing this kind of work is seldom, seldom the kind of thing that, that where you end up having, um, you know, a what I would consider to be a um, disproportionately large financial gain as a result. 
but that's right, fine. Right. That's it's not fine. like it's not like your money just like you just sit around with bags of it and it grows exponentially <laughs> or something. You with know? your feet on the you desk, earn, smoking as a you cigar, said, you earn every penny of it. Like, yeah, you know. yeah, and that's that's another thing that I know you and I are both particularly proud of is that you know if we did build by the era, which thank God we don't, for the sake of our clients, um, we'd probably be earning less than minimum wage, but. It evens out in in several different ways, just because hard work gets good results. Good results gets word of mouth um, reputation. And you know, since you and I joined forces together, I've been you know we have been definitely definitely taking on some of the bigger, crazier cases throughout the state. I know that um, you know, individually on our own, we used to. You know, I have a fair share of those kinds of things, but we are getting uh, quite a bit of attention throughout the entire state on the on what I would call the good stuff, and I don't mean well. That. The reason the reason is is because um, the the uh, the general view is to not concentrate on money. Like uh, we have to charge big fees. That's fine or reasonable. You know, they're they're, they're you know they're very reasonable. But um, the object is to win. You know, and that doesn't mean that every case goes to trial, and that doesn't mean you get an acquittal in every case. But the object, the goal, always is to win, and that's why people would come to us. And that's the reputation I've always sought to attain, as I know you have. Um, and 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 I and I think that if more folks had that, I think if more folks had that attitude, defense lawyers, we'd ha- we wouldn't have has great a disparity in trials versus pleas that we do now. Right, right. Uh, 97% of cases resolved by plea. Let me just... That's ridiculous. Let me address a point that that raises, and it's this. <clears throat> Sometimes when people hear that kind of philosophy, like every take, every case we take, we seek to win, and they wonder, okay, well, a lot of people that you're representing have probably committed the crime they're accused of, and how is that ethically proper or morally correct to oh, that's an excellent rep- question. represent people. But let me address that first, and then I'll turn it over to you because I know you have a very passionate view on this as well. The system, the legal system, our American principles of justice rely completely on it being tested constantly. And when you stop testing it and when you start just taking it for granted, that it loses all of its uh, protective force. Every time someone's accused of a crime, and I don't care what the crime is, what the person's background is, the color of their skin or their gender or anything else, by law, by our American laws, they are presumed innocent and must be presumed innocent at all phases of the proceeding unless a jury unanimously convicts somebody beyond a reasonable doubt. So when we say we treat every case as though it's going to trial. We seek to win every case. That That is something that if we didn't do that, prosecutors would not be able to ever obtain convictions. Judges wouldn't be able to preside over any cases. There would be no criminal law in our system. So those people out there that say, how could you do that? Well, guess what? You know, the day that you're a family member or yourself is a victim of a crime and you walk into a system that is not reliable, is not strong, is not something that has been tested by the methods that, that are supposed to keep it strong, uh, you, would, you would deeply regret that the system would work in a way 
uh, other than it does now. Now, a lot of people you know, have different views of what the purpose of the justice system is. And one thing I want to correct is this mis misperception that it's there to uh, correct all wrongs, to restore people to a state of happiness, to serve as a form of retributional anger. No, this is the best we can do in a society that is imperfect, with human beings that are even more imperfect. And our, our best method that we have available to seek the desired outcome in order to maintain an orderly society, but also to have a system that we can rely upon and have faith in. Because if people lose faith in the system, I mean, we've seen this with uh, repeatedly. You know, you and I remember a time when the vast majority of Americans didn't believe that innocent people ever get convicted. And now we fast forward to nowadays, and we know what happens all right, the time. The all yeah. the darn time. I mean, to, a, to an <clears throat> insane level that you could not have imagined how many actual, actually innocent people have been convicted, have served very, very long sentences. Reminds me of our colleague uh, Jared Adams, who's uh, of counsel mm -hmm. in our firm. People probably don't know this if you don't pay close attention to what we're doing, but one of our uh, attorneys that works in our office is, in fact, an exoneree. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Served almost 10 years for a crime he did not commit. Yeah. And, and, and was sprung by the Wisconsin uh, Innocence Project. And good for him that he was able to uh, be motivated to make a change and use his own experience for the good of others because... I think what normally happens, at least the people I have met and have talked to that have been exonerees, they tend to feel deflated, defeated, and unfairly um, prejudiced in such a way that you just lose all faith in goodness, you know? It, yeah. And it does tend to destroy more than just the years that are lost due to a faulty criminal justice system, but also just destroys a person's will. Um, and when... You know, think 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 about what that feels like when you know you didn't commit a crime. Somehow it went wrong, went wrong again when it got appealed, went wrong again when it got appealed from there, and no one believes you, and they look at you like you're some kind of scum of the earth. And what would you think? What would you think about being a citizen in America when that has happened to you? The harm that it does not only to the person, but, but to all of our society, knowing that those things happen is simply intolerable to me. It's the kind of thing that makes me, uh, makes steam come out of my ears like a, lo <laughs> like a Looney Tunes cartoon. I've, Seriously. I've seen, I've seen that steam and, um, you know, it's very, it's scary. You know, when I see the steam coming, I'm like, okay, everybody back away. Yeah, back away, back off. <laughs> She's going to blow. <laughs> Fire in the hole. No, but I understand, and I, I know we're coming up on a break, but I, uh, uh, I, I, I get that whole perspective. And I think that um, one of the things that folks, like, and by folks I mean non-lawyers, um, that aren't involved in the system, in fact, non-criminal practitioners that aren't involved in the criminal justice system need to really understand is um, the uh, the importance of test that testing that you referred to and 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 more importantly is is based on our experience to show how paper thin 
many, many, many criminal filings are. Uh, and that um, if people's rights, to, for example, to not make statements were protected more vigorously by the police and by invoking it by people themselves, a lot of criminal cases would never exist. That's right. Because, because people's own big mouths get them in trouble. Always. And, and, <laughs> well, let's hold we that can, thought. Hold that thought. Okay. We've got to come back right, after this break. We'll this. pick up right yep. there. We'll be right back. And we're back. Um, and we were chatting about um, the uh, uh, thinness, thinness of most criminal filing. Paper thinness. Okay. okay. So just, just – so just just so we are clear here with the listeners um, that you know by statute criminal cases in Wisconsin are started by the filing of a criminal complaint by the district attorney of a county right on behalf of the state of Wisconsin right on behalf so of you and 70, me yeah on behalf of you and me and we have seventy two counties and um, only seventy one circuit courts because the Menominee. Uh, county doesn't have one. So, um, uh, but those district attorneys have been empowered with so many statutes, so many choices about how to charge. And that's what I mean when I say over-criminalization. Like there's all these enhancers and all these slicing and dicing uh, so they could like uh, file on one act. They can file File like five different charges for you, you know, yeah. just to just to like increase the penalties, and so um, uh, and this comes back to the pushback. So um, uh, when they do that, what that does is that creates this crush on the defendant to not want to take the risk at trial. So you aren't just charged with stalking; you're charged with stalking and disorderly conduct, and maybe like you know. Uh, threatening a threatening a witness or threatening a victim or you know whatever you know there's like there's there'll be a whole series of things so it's not just one charge even though it's like one act and um, and that's where the trial penalty comes in because if you go to trial you're gonna get and you lose you're gonna get whacked mm-hmm. and um, and so what they do is they like it's 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 their hammer. Uh, carrot, or the, what's the analogy? <laughs> yeah, it's the, yeah, it's carrot, the, it's the, he, the heavy hammer. The heavy hammer. Yeah. So, so, um, and, and I and I think that um, a lot of people don't really appreciate the um, the difficulties that have been um, ramped up over the last 40, 50 years to create this system. It's very intentional. This is not an accident. This is very, very, very intentional. And a lot of it's aimed at minority groups. And if you have any doubt about that, just look at the way that uh, the courts of appeals interpret statutory provisions that create these upper hands. You know, I remember back when I first started in this area of law, practicing as a criminal defense lawyer, and realizing that, you know, if a prosecutor wants to, they have access to... Uh, you know, a treasure trove of tools and ways by which they can exert additional pressure on a defendant in order to get a plea of guilty. And my first reaction was, well, that's got to be wrong. That's got to be unconstitutional in some way. Well, guess what? It's (laughs) that very notion, that naked notion, unobscured by any disguise, is something that is is reviewed with great approval from the courts of appeals when they see these issues. They're like, yeah, of course, yeah, of course, the Congress Congress or the legislature, they wanted prosecutors to have this great power because 
That way they can seek justice better. Problem is, John, and I know I know you're going to agree with this, and it's kind of get boils down to the essence of what's wrong and is very, very hard to fix in any way in our justice system. People in modern society are used to things working in a much more precise manner. And what I mean by that is, do you or anybody other than a very savvy computer expert understand everything that your laptop is doing or your smart TV is doing or your My iPad no. or your smartphone or any of these things? We just take those things for granted. It's an incredibly complicated thing, but it's done with you know, digital technology, something that doesn't have its own uh, subjective intelligence, at least not in, in what we're talking about with human beings. So, you know, that expectation that things are done precisely. Um, look at what we've been through with, uh, you know, the pandemic and our hopes that uh, doing things in a certain way will have certain outcomes. And when they don't, people start accusing each other of lying rather than the fact that things are not as precise as we'd like them to be. But this is a process. Honestly, it, it has more to do with human emotion, human error than any other thing we do, any other thing we do, except maybe falling in love and falling out of love with people, you know? <laughs> That's a lot, the, the a whole, lot of imprecision system, involved in that. The whole system, statutory and case law, that provides the, um, uh, the quote, law that we operate under uh, is, is, is predicated on a bunch of really weaselly words mm-hmm. like reasonableness mm-hmm. um <laughs> like what you know and you the defendant reasonably should have known well what does that mean well you would line up 10 people and uh, 10 cheese heads in wisconsin and you're gonna get 10 answers yeah so I, talk I wanna, about lack of precision i, I do want to spend a significant period of time on a different show um about one of the topics that you and i have you know kind of talked about ad nauseum in our own personal lives and professional lives of this idea about whether there really is any such thing as a judicial activist or, or not. And, and oh not, not, not yes. today, not today, not today. That's a very today, deep topic. But, well, but that I, raises that I, issue, you know. Yep. Well, let's, let's do that. Let's plan on that. And, and then in the time we have left, um, I would really like to circle back to what I was talking about before about people's own big mouths. Be my guess. <clears throat> so the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution is really, it's something to behold in world history. Um, it really is, as is the First Amendment, as is the Constitution for that matter, um, despite all its flaws, despite all its flaws. But the, but the Fifth Amendment, um, and I won't go into all the uh, aspects of it, but it's a, it's a collaboration of, it's a, of, of different rights and amalgam uh, limitations <laughs> an amalgam of different limitations on the government. That's and for all, our, those, all our dentist friends out there. They like <laughs> one of those from which the Miranda warning sprang says that, um, uh, that no citizen shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Uh, and, what that what that did was that said, you know, because it used to be you if so they ordered you to talk, you had to talk, mm-hmm. and um, and it used to be that the judges, the magistrates, did the inquisition, if you will, mm-hmm. um, of the defendant, right? Well, so, that's that's not an um, exaggeration. That's what they called it. You know, <laughs> I know, I know, and and but that provision right there is so critically important 
and people don't understand it. Everybody, ever, you know, like, okay, for example, every call we get, not every call, but a lot of calls we get, and I know you know this, <laughs> is that people say, well, they didn't read me my Miranda rights. Well, um, okay, so the Miranda is not in the Constitution. <laughs> it's been interpreted to uh, be required to have these warnings out of fairness because people don't understand what the Fifth Amendment means in terms of the right not to incriminate yourself. Right. And that's why those warnings were developed. Well, right, and, and because who, do, like, who does know that? Who knows when it's the right time to invoke your rights? The cop asking right. you the questions. That's what Miranda's all about. If anybody in the room or wherever you are knows that this is the right time to refer back to that right that you have that you should exercise, it's right now. You know, cops went okay. crazy when that decision came out. They were like, oh, oh they, my they God. Were, they went nuts. They went nuts. <laughs> but here's, here's the point that I'm driving at, and that is that I'm going to say, and this is not a scientific study by any means, but I'm going to say half or more of every criminal case would either be severely um, uh, un- yeah, undercut, undercut yeah. or eliminated entirely without without the statements by the suspect, by the defendant. The mm-hmm. defendant talking to the police about anything. So, hey, Mr. Jones, uh, yeah, we just, yeah, we had a complaint about something. It, it happened yesterday, you know, and, and then Mr. Jones starts talking about where he was yesterday. Well, you just, you know, maybe you just placed yourself at the scene of a crime. You don't even know, you know. What they think, They yeah. don't have to give you Miranda if you're not in custody. You have to be in custody. You have to be in their yeah, custody. Yeah, it should never be based on, oh, I didn't hear my rights yet, so I guess I can say whatever I want. No, anything you right. say at any time. Anything that absolutely. comes out of your mouth. <laughs> yes. And and trust me, trust me on this. Please, everybody listen to this. <laughs> you will never say anything to help yourself just by talking to the police. It's impossible. You, everything that you say will be twisted around to, because that is their job. Mm-hmm. And um, it'll be twisted around to place you at a scene, to associate you with a person, to um, give you knowledge of what, you know your actions that you know like we said we reasonably should have known. Well, well they're, they're, you, the knowledge can come right out of your own mouth. And going back to the the purpose behind the Fifth Amendment, it's acknowledging the fact that again this is a limitation on governmental power. So if a police officer who obviously is an agent of the government, their position in that part of the process is always going to be one of an investigation. They wouldn't be talking to you if that weren't the case, which is why we have exceptions. This like we know that there's that. They're not professional visitors. Right. They're not like (laughs) – I mean and some of them can be nice people, but but that's beside the point. It's the role. It's the governmental role. And the fact that – Things like a person's demeanor, body posture, the inflection in their voice, those are things that, uh, that somehow subjectively come into the determination about whether a person will be charged or not. And this also goes back to a recognition, you know, we can dovetail right into the Sixth Amendment here, that when somebody has, uh, is facing a criminal charge or a criminal investigation, they have a right to counsel. It acknowledges the fact that, you know, there is a lot of intricate trickery that occurs in the process of any investigation. And someone like you or I that would recognize when those things are happening 
it's critical that somebody not be tricked into thinking that this is all fair game and everything's good. Hey, dude, we got to yeah. we got to quit. I mean, oh, no. time's up. So much to cover. Ooh, all right, we'll I have know. to do it in another show. All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening. Tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 FM. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend. Have a great one.